The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, so we're bringing you some messages that have come into the show mailbox over the past few weeks. Uh, let's see. We are still getting messages about the vegetable lamb of Tartary. People, people never <laughs> give up on that one. Let's see. People uh, love the vegetable lamb. People love it. They're constantly coming up to us saying, "Why aren't we getting more vegetable lamb?" <laughs> uh, Rob, do you want to do this one from Ian, or, or should I? Take sure, it? sure. Dear Robert and Joe, I'm about six weeks behind on episodes, so apologies if someone already wrote in about this, but I was listening to your episode on the Lamb of Tartary, and it was reminded of a group of plants that does grow itself an animal. The Ophrys genus of orchids are known as bee orchids, and each one grows flowers that are little replicas of a female bee or other pollinator. The flowers not only look and feel like the female, but also release the sex hormone of fertile females. This facsimile lures in males to try to mate with the flower, thereby transferring pollen and fertilizing the orchid. Each species of this orchid is adapted to lure in males of only one particular pollinator species, though rarely individuals of a closely related species will be duped as well. Amusingly, males do eventually learn to distinguish between the flowers and true females of their species, so it tends to be the younger, inexperienced males that are tricked. It actually makes me feel a little bad for them. <laughs> 
This is obviously a far cry from the fully functioning mammal on a tether of the lamb of Tartary, but is nonetheless a fascinating example of very specific evolutionary pressures causing a plant to grow a kind of animal on its stem. As always, thanks for your wonderful show, and please keep up the good work. Ian. Well, that is a that is a great example, Ian. And actually, um, I, I while we were recording the, those episodes, or maybe shortly before, I went to the uh, Atlanta Botanical Garden and I was walking around, like looking particularly at, at ferns, thinking I might see some sort of woolly uh, mass that resembled a sheep, but also looking at a lot of orchids. And yeah, there, there's so many fabulous um, uh, forms uh, in the orchids, uh, some that at least to the human imagination may look like uh, like little creatures or little, uh, little humanoids, little uh, angels at times. And uh, yeah, this is a great example of, uh, of, of a, you know, a, t- a targeted uh, uh, mimicry that is uh, employed by the flower. Rob, do you know about the orchid that looks kind of like a, uh, a sinister clown? I don't know this one. Uh, uh, it looks kind of like uh, like the the violator from Spawn or something. Oh. So look up uh, uh, Ophrys ariadne, or uh, the the species name is A R I A D N A E. Oh yeah, this is uh, this is interesting looking. I, I don't know. I don't get as much of a Spawn feel from this. Is more. <laughs> it looks like some sort of uh, a, a fluffy winged Pokemon type of creature. Oh okay, uh, but, but I, I like it. I mean, I guess it depends exactly how the the pattern works out, and if you squint when you're looking at it and stuff. But I can I can sometimes see like a like a like a mean looking kind of rotund clown that's that's <laughs> telling me I'm going to go to hell. I don't know. <laughs> I see like a slightly burly little fella with very fuzzy arms or wings, uh, and almost looks like he, I can see two eyes for sure, and almost kind of like a, a beak going on there. It's kind of making a Muppet face. Like kind of, you know, when uh, when Kermit the Frog is a little perturbed, like that kind of like scrunched in face. Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. The the, the kind of when the when the puppet bends. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, one. Le- oh, the, the, but the clown orchid is in the same genus, the, the, the Ophrys genus. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a remarkable looking uh, specimen. I don't know that I've seen one in person, though. To be clear, I don't think it's officially called the clown orchid. That's just what it looked like to me. <laughs> All right. Well, we, we've got. The, the last of the, the vegetable lamb uh, listener mail out of the way. Uh, what's next on the, on the schedule here? What's next oh, on the plate? Oh, so, so many listeners got in touch about cauldrons, uh, specifically <laughs> about our segment on the ceramic cooking cauldrons of the Jomon culture in prehistoric Japan. Mm. Now, you remember uh, these, uh, the, these were ceramic pots that were used for cooking by these hunter-gatherers who lived in, in Japan. Uh, and these pots had intriguing features. For example, they had decorative textures that were made by pressing ropes into the wet clay. Um, so you see kind of a fibery texture along the, the outside of the finished pots. Uh, but also, uh, a, a mysterious fact that we discussed was uh, that the earliest pots in this pottery uh, school appear to be rounded on the bottom rather than flat. So these were cooking vessels that would not stand up by themselves on a flat surface. Hmm. So on to the messages addressing that. This first one comes from Kat, and she says, Just listen to episode one of Cauldrons, and I have some clues to throw your way regarding questions you posited in the episode. First, why were the earliest cauldrons rounded rather than flat-bottomed? 
Speaking as a crafter, I answer for strength. Angles in pottery are weak points and frequent points of failure. Speaking as a cook, I answer for evenness of heating throughout. The same reason why Chinese and Japanese cooking still makes use of the wok. You can get a lot more control of temperature in a rounded vessel. Speaking as someone who has to wash her own dishes for ease of maintenance. Food scraps uh, don't have corners to cling in after the cooking's done, and so the pot can last longer before the accumulated residue of previous meals begins to be evident in the background flavor. And speaking as someone who backpacks, portability, and travel security, you can stick a rounded pot upside down on a backpack's protrusion and be reliably sure it will stay there without needing to be tied down or risking the weak point of some kind of handle. Uh, that last point is really interesting, Cap, because, mm-hmm. yeah, as we talked about it, uh, you might have expected that pottery was invented by people who had already settled down into a stable, like, uh, uh, fixed existence in geography and started practicing agriculture. But no, the evidence is that the Jomon culture was making uh, pottery for cooking in while they were still hunter-gatherers. Cat mm. continues. Also, I would like to know if the upper rims of these really ancient pots have been found or not, because it could well be that they were hung or suspended over fires as later metal cauldrons came to be, in which case the rounded bottom definitely allows for even heating throughout the contents, as opposed to the scorching that a flat bottom pan gives when hung over fire. This is me speaking as a camp cook, by the way. Next, I want to posit a scenario. A tribe of gatherers makes their seasonal camp on a riverbed in a fertile valley. In the months since they were last there, the river has flooded somewhat, and they discover that the hollow pit where they had made the communal fire they kept going for months at ago last year was sort of washed out by the current. But here's the thing. The clay bottom of the pit, where the coals had sat, that earth is still solid, hollowed out on one side, but like a rounded rock when someone knocks on it with their knuckles. Now imagine that this happens every year when they come back. A new fire pit in the bottomland clay, a new hollowed out rock where no such rock existed before. Maybe eventually a flood that's a little tamer than the others and only washes out half of the hard-baked clay, and suddenly some woman, for it's reliably the women spending all of their days at these fires after all, works out what happened, and maybe how to do it on purpose, too. In short, my theory is that the first pottery came about as most all human innovations did, just to see if a natural effect could be done deliberately. The uses to which they would put it, I figured that happened later, once the new hardened hollow rock that the first lady crafted came out of the fire intact. Anyway, thanks for your time, for your fascinating research, and for your podcast, Cat. Very good points, Cat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love all the, the personal uh, experience with, with camp cooking and stuff uh, as well. I can't remember, did we talk about the idea that these pots may have been suspended over fires by, by ropes or fibers or uh, leather straps or something I don't, like that? I don't know if we got into that as much, but certainly when you when you look back at the, the, the early history of, uh, of this style of cooking, yeah, you're, you're dealing with, like, even, even, if, even in the, the period before uh, pottery, uh, yeah, you're talking about either cooking in the ground or cooking suspended above the fire, etc. So mm-hmm. uh, very much something to take into account. Yeah, that that does seem like a possibility to me. And that, that would explain why it could be rounded on the bottom. Or it could be that it sat in some kind of holder. Mm. All right, this next one comes to us from Sean. 
Sean writes, hi, Joe and Rob. Just finished The Cauldron Part 1 episode and had three thoughts. Number one, you mused about the transition from open flame cooking to wet cooking. Perhaps there was a noticeable decrease in sickness and death among those whose liquid was solely or mostly from soup or broth, since boiling would kill microbes in the water. So perhaps it was adopted partially because it seemed to be safer. That's an interesting idea. And so my brain immediately went to like, well, wait a minute, if you're eating soup, uh, uh, does that necessarily mean you need to drink less water? But then I guess I, I'm probably thinking about like uh, soup that is uh, salty to a modern oh, you know, yeah. canned soup extent. If, if you're eating like soup, you know, largely liquid based food, soups and broths that are not heavily salted. Yeah, that's probably replacing a huge amount of the need for water you would need to drink otherwise. So yeah, you could be essentially turning your water needs into into uh, mostly or entirely cooked water, which would lower the risk of waterborne illness. Yeah. Plus, I think we touched on like you go into the history of tea, for example, and mm-hmm. you know uh, you go back far enough, and the the the, line, the dividing line between drink and soup and broth uh, becomes a little less clear. All right, Sean's point number two. Have you heard of the iron fish? You can read about it on Wikipedia, but essentially impoverished uh, Cambodian women are anemic. Studies were conducted that found adding an iron ingot to the soup increased iron, but it wasn't until the fish shape, supposed to be lucky, was widely adopted. Not exactly rock cooking, but that's where my thoughts went. So I guess the the idea here is uh, a piece of iron shaped like a fish that goes into your, your pot. Yeah, I looked this up. So this would be a situation where when you're making a soup, you put the iron uh, fish into the pot and it leaches iron into the food, increasing your iron intake. And I, I, I haven't looked into this deeply, but just at a glance, it looked like this uh, was useful in uh, helping people whose anemia was related to dietary iron deficiency, but it was not useful in helping people whose anemia had other causes. It'd be interesting to see if there are any studies out there about making like – non-food items or sort of marginally food items, animal-shaped, and what effect that has on our mm-hmm. psychology. Like animal I think crackers. about the Swedish yeah. fish, for example, uh, the, the red candy that is shaped like a fish. It does not contain fish. Uh, if memory serves, it's actually vegan. Um, but there's something about it being shaped like the fish makes it more okay. If it were just shaped like a coin, uh, I, I would be less inclined to eat it somehow, and I can't explain why that is. You are right. I thought surely the Swedish fish contains gelatin, which would not be vegan. But I looked it up. That is, uh, you are right. It is vegan. Yes, I've known vegans to swear by it. Uh, I'll still eat the occasional uh, <laughs> Swedish fish. All right, and then point number three from Sean. Lastly, Disney's The Black Cauldron does not do justice to the books, but the art is wonderful and the backstory is amazing. You can find lots on YouTube. I went down the rabbit hole over a week or so. Anyway, thanks for the fascinating topics and wide-ranging discussions. Yeah, I've never actually watched The Black Cauldron all the way through, uh, and I can't get the boy interested in it, and I haven't pressed him hard on it because I've always heard this, that it's kind of a lackluster Disney film, even though it does have some cauldron imagery in it, and you have that, uh, uh, what, the Horned King that plays an important role in it that is a very cool-looking villain. Yeah, I've never seen it either. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, Ethan says, hello, Rob and Joe. I'm Ethan from Indiana, longtime fan of the show and listen to it almost every day. I was listening to this uh, this week's episode on the cauldron and the topic of stone boiling, and it immediately brought to mind a video I had seen of uh, about traditional nomadic Mongolian food. In this dish called badug, they cut the head off of a goat, gut the organs they don't want, and then fill the inside of the goat with broth, vegetables, and various other soup ingredients through the severed neck of the goat. The final addition is a handful of searing hot stones from a fire that are dropped into the neck, which is then tied off to create a seal. Once tied, they will shave slash skin the body, opening up the neck every now and again to release pressure or to stir the inside. In the episode discussion, stone boiling seemed like such an ancient and uh, bygone day method of cooking, so I found it fascinating that it's still being practiced in some regions, and that this uh, archaic method has stood the test of time. Uh, And then Ethan provides a link to the video, says, thanks for the fun discussions you've shared, and I look forward to many more. Cheers, Ethan. Uh, So, Ethan, I checked out this video, and this is really interesting. Yeah, so... It appears to be a, uh, a traditional practice where you would take an animal like a goat, and I think you would remove some of the uh, some or a lot of the meat and sort of trim it up, and then you would place the meat back inside the the hide uh, to stew along with the vegetables and the broth and the seasonings and stuff, and you'd seal it up, and then yeah, you you sort of singe off the outside of the skin, and then you serve it up as a communal meal. You sort of cut it open at a big table with everybody standing around, and I, I don't know how universal this practice is, but in the video that Ethan shared, there was an interesting thing where the when the stew sack is cut open. Before eating, all the people fish out the hot stones and they distribute them to the guests and everybody holds them in their hands and they must still be pretty hot because they sort of keep tossing the hot stones, uh, tossing them or passing them back and forth from palm to palm. And I can't be certain, but it, it looks like this is this is implied to be a regular part of the experience of eating bodog, like it's part of the meal. You'd feel mm. the stone as a type of culinary experience. Yeah, very interesting. Well, thanks for writing in, Ethan. All right, here's another cauldron message. This one comes to us from Tyler. Hi, Robert and Joe. After listening to your most recent episode on cauldrons, I was wondering if in any of the research you have done on Chinese mythology, you have run across the sculpture garden at Ha Par Villa in Singapore. Along with many scriptural dioramas depicting events in Chinese mythology, there is an exhibit depicting many different circles of hell. Um, I had the opportunity to visit Ha Par when I was living in Singapore, and the whole place is very strange and a lot of fun. Here is a link to the site, but you may have better luck getting a feel for the place through an image search. Uh, and in, they, they do, in fact, include uh, this link, which is uh, H-A-W-P-A-R-V-I-L-L-A dot S-G. And... Um, 
it, it is a very nice website that, yeah, doesn't, it kind of seems to sort of gloss over <laughs> the, the grislier details of the, uh, of, of, the, of, of the hell exhibit, or at least some, some of the photos you'll find in an image search. Uh, Tyler writes, I, I have included a couple of photos I took while there. I love the podcast, and you guys always do a great job. All the best, Tyler. One of these photos captures an awesome turtle man. It's like a turtle shell. It's oh. like surfing on a wave, but instead of a turtle's head coming out of the neck hole, it is the upper body of a man. Nice. It looks like there's some giant crabs in here as well. Oh, yes. And, and then there is, looks, looks like there is a large demon with a man on a meat hook or a skewer of some sort, possibly dunking him into some sort of a foul river or vat. This turtle man, though, does not look like hell imagery. This looks like a blast. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously, I, I've never been to this uh, this this exhibit, so I don't know what part of the exhibit this is a photo from. Uh, this may be from part of it that is not connected to the various hells and is tied with some other mythology. Uh, but it looks like there are some other sort of aquatic hybrid people in the background as well. Yeah, this looks great. So thanks, Tyler, for writing in and, uh, and sharing these images with us. Uh, yeah, this is a, a fascinating place. I think I'd, I'd maybe heard of it in the past, uh, uh, but like I say, certainly haven't been there, but it looks, looks amazing. All right, let's see. Uh, maybe we do one more about cauldrons. This one from Lee. Okay. Lee says, hello, Rob and Joe. Just finished listening to the cauldron episode. The episode reminded me of a trick we learned when in the scouts, boiling water in a paper cup, hmm. a regular paper cup. It can be waxed, but not plastic or styrofoam filled with water and placed in a fire and will maintain its integrity while the water boils. We took it one step further and placed an egg in the cup of water before placing it in the fire. The result was one hard-boiled egg. The cup will burn, but only down to the water level. This memory got me thinking about early cooking vessels, as you were talking about them. I have no real support for this, but please follow along. If early buckets for hauling water were made from animal hide, they likely were bowl-shaped, since stitching a flat bottom would result in leaks. Handles to facilitate carrying would likely result in drawstring closure of sorts to the top. Think a marble bag. If these wet water bags were suspended over a fire, the water could be boiled since the wet bag wouldn't burn. The longish carry handles could hold the bag from the tripod or other device and be long enough to keep the handles from the fire. If this design carried over to a vessel made of riverbank clay, it could explain the round bottom of early clay cooking vessels. Again, no proof, just food for thought. Love the show. Look forward to every episode. Lee. Uh, that's interesting, Lee. I, I had no idea that uh, you could boil water in a wet cup. I've never tried it. And I, I don't know if the same would apply to a piece of hide, but that it seems to make sense that it might at least, because, I mean, obviously, once you introduce water into a heating equation, um, you know, that's going – water just absorbs so much heat. I, I can see how it would potentially prevent the burning through of a material that might otherwise be burned through pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Now, I have to say, as a, uh, as a former scout and uh, the parent of a current scout, I, I don't think I have ever conducted this, uh, this, this uh, waxed paper cup egg uh, experiment, but uh, I, I, I trust the, the listener's uh, experience here. I'll have to try it myself. I just looked it up. Uh, can you boil water in a paper cup? The, the internet seems to be pretty unanimous. Yes, you can. Hmm. 
basically because the ignition temperature of the of the paper is going to be higher than the boiling point of the water so the the heat that's going into the bo- the wet bottom of the paper cup is just uh continually heating up the water i think it would have to evaporate the water before the cup would be able to get hot enough to catch on fire hmm all right. Well, we appreciate everyone, everyone who wrote in about our cauldron episodes, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we'll get some more listener mail uh, related to those episodes, plus the, the subsequent cauldron episodes. Uh, so write in, let us know what you think, what you've experienced, uh, what you've heard. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, as a reminder, listener mail episodes run uh, most Mondays, and then on most Wednesdays we do a short-form um, episode that is a, an artifact or a monster fact. On Tuesdays and Thursdays we do our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and on Fridays we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. You'll find it all in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.